According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here once again for the purpose of growth. Matthew chapter 18 will be our primary scripture today. Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is one of the great discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, you've got the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. You've got the Kingdom of Heaven parables in um, Matthew 13. You've got this lengthy uh, discourse here in Matthew 18. And then coming up, we've got the Mount Olivet discourse in uh, chapters 24 and 25. Matthew is sometimes called the Gospel of Discourse because it does contain uh, the... Uh, dialogue for these uh, great discourses of our Savior. Adjust my mat here. Okay. Cliff must have really been going Sunday night. This mat is all askew and kicked back. Some serious preaching going when this mat gets all mangled like that. All right. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this just is amazing. He's uh, been trying to tell them now for a couple of episodes that he's uh, getting ready to die, that he's going to go to the cross, that he's about to be betrayed, that his time to depart is soon coming. And they don't like those kind of messages. Peter even tries to stop him at one point and say, Quit saying that kind of stuff, (laughs) right? Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You know, Peter gives him one of those over my dead body kind of speeches. And so the Lord has to say, get behind me, Satan. This is this is the father's purpose. And so even as our savior is locking in more and more on the plan of God and staying obedient to the father's design, uh, it seems that the disciples are just getting more and more clueless in uh, in their own selfishness. Well, that's the nature of it. That's how selfishness works. When you get wrapped up and your eyes are focused on the things of this world, Uh, you can be diametrically opposed to uh, what you're supposed to be doing. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get back to our outline, shall we pray? Mighty Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for the truth of your word. We ask for distractions to be set aside and for, Father, the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. We know that you are faithful to guide us in the truth. We thank you that you've made this uh, provision possible. We thank you for the unique nature of our present stewardship that every believer priest is uh, permanently indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and for the teaching ministry of that spirit to our human spirits, making these, uh, these eternal truths absolutely clear. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. If it gets too warm in here, feel free to hit that. I, uh, it was just a little nippy, and I uh, hit the thermostat on my way in. Let's get a uh, slideshow running. Point one, the single episode is actually a series of events which all center on the need for humility. And we'll go through the outline again. We did last week and the week before. We'll go through the outline again and remind ourselves of what these events are. The key event to all of them, though, is, is humility. And the fact that Christ was living in the realm of humility and uh, and the disciples weren't. As far as Matthew's events are concerned, it starts with this one. The disciples arguing about greatness. 
And uh, I think I have the slide still up here. I'm going to pass by a lot of these. Then Christ's illustration with a child. We dealt with a child last week. Subpoints there. Thirdly, he warns about the stumbling blocks. That's where we're going to be today. Warning about the stumbling blocks. The rest of them here in Matthew. The 90 and 9 from verses 12 through 14. There's the need for humility. Think about the humility the shepherd exhibits when he goes out to find that lost sheep. The uh, humility that uh, is willing to suffer and uh, go the extra mile, as it were, to bring that sheep back. The corporate discipline of verses 15 through 20, that takes humility. That you don't approach your brother to point out his faults as if somehow you're superior or somehow uh, you have all the answers and they need to measure up to your standard. No, you come alongside your brother actually with fear and trembling, looking to yourself also lest you too be tempted. Uh, the 70 times 7 takes humility to be able to forgive a guy 7 times or forgive a guy 77 times. And then an old account settled, the, the forgiveness and then having the humility to realize that I am a forgiven one. I've been forgiven billions and billions of dollars. I can forgive my fellow slave the, uh, you know, the 75 cents that he owes me or whatever the, the parallel there is. All right. So all of those events, and you'll see this is a series of events, but they all center on the realm of humility. Now, let's uh, deal with point C now, Christ warning about the stumbling blocks, and I'll give you some subpoints. I'm going to back up, actually. Because I've renumbered some things from last week. So let me, what do the politicians say? The poli- uh, they, they want to revise and extend their comments, right? Allow me to revise and extend. Um, I didn't change a whole lot. What I did do, though, I left point one the same. This is under B. Christ illustrates with a child. And there were three subpoints. Application number one is become childlike. And uh, I didn't touch that point at all. Point two, become humble. Top end, no. Oh, I see my fonts are doing weird things again. And point three, this one I did change. I added the Mark and Luke scriptures that were not on the screen last week. For application number three on receiving such childlike brethren. Uh, all three Gospels use the command or the expectation of receiving such ones. And so I did not have, on the board last week, I did not have the Mark 9.37 or the Luke 9.48 scriptures there. So I added those to the Matthew 18.5 reference. Our treatment of Christ through the treatment of others is an essential feature of the kingdom of heaven mystery state. We've taught on that in the past. I won't go back on that today other than to say that it includes church age and tribulation. The kingdom of God mystery state is when the kingdom has been rejected. The king has returned to his father's throne for the time being until such time as he is sent to occupy the throne on earth. And so dispensationally, we can say it overlaps and it encompasses our present church age and the coming tribulation of Israel. The present church age, of course, has the stewardship in the church. The coming tribulation of Israel returns the stewardship back to Israel. However, both, uh, both realms uh, are encompassed by the, uh, the concept of kingdom of heaven, mystery state. And then I went ahead and deleted point four. So the point four you have last week, cross it off, it's going to become point one this week under, uh, under C. Also, I've gone ahead, I didn't change this slide, I should have. For B, where you have Matthew 18, verses 2 through 6, I changed that to 2 through 5. 
And then under point C, Christ warns about stumbling blocks. I changed that from 7 through 10 to 6 through 10. Basically, I moved verse 6 from B to C. Christ illustrates with a child, and he does that in verses 2 through 5. And then he warns about stumbling blocks, still with that same child, but he warns about stumbling blocks in 6 through 10. The um, paragraphs in the New American Standard run 1 through 5 and then 7 through 11. The paragraphs in the Nestle Elan Greek text run 1 through 5 and 6 through 10. And so I'm going to keep the outline consistent with the, uh, with the Greek text. Does that make sense? So, so unlike what you see on the screen, under point B, Christ illustrates with a child, make that 2 through 5. Matthew 18, 2 through 5. And then on point C, Christ warns about stumbling blocks. Go ahead and move 6 right there to Matthew 18, 6 through 10. Otherwise, I think everything there should be good. All right. Warning about the stumbling blocks. Following the three positive applications, Jesus delivers one very strong warning. So three applications is followed by one warning. Do not cause these little ones to stumble. Little ones in context, childlike brethren. Now, whether they're biologically young or not doesn't matter. If they have the childlike faith, if they are imitating this child in their faith, that is exactly who you do not want to cause to stumble. So verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> that sounds like a problem. That is not a desirable alternative. I'll have some things to say about that here in a moment. So we have three applications. Again, from last week, become childlike, become humble. And uh, receive such childlike brethren. Those are the three applications. And if you cause them to stumble, I don't think you can apply any of the three. I think if you are a stumbling block, if your life is such and your attitude is such that, uh, that you are a, uh, an obstacle to other believers fulfilling their work assignments, then that's not childlike, that's not humble, and that's not the uh, hospitable, uh, gracious believer that we're called to be in these three applications. All right, now some subpoints under this, A, B, and C. First of all, A, the divine discipline consequences. The divine discipline consequences for permitting and or producing such stumbling blocks are only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. I want you to get that down and chew on it, and then we'll discuss it here in a moment. The divine discipline consequences. In other words, if you cause a brother to stumble, God the Father's coming down on you. The divine discipline consequences for permitting and or producing such stumbling blocks. How do you compare them? They are only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. Having a millstone around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. An unthinkable alternative. 
Now, are we talking... Is this passage delving into literal divine discipline? Should we use this verse as a step of church discipline? We've got to find a millstone somewhere and chain somebody down with it and chunk them out there into Galveston Bay. Is that what we're going to do? No. Okay. Any more than we're going to amputate hands or feet or pluck out eyes. Literally. Okay. Because through the method of parables and through the, uh, the, the metaphors that he's speaking here, the figure of language that he's using, we should be able to understand this. But he is drawing a comparison and he uses the term better. All right? He uses the term better. We're going to key on it several times here because not only does he use it here, where he says it would be better. Notice not is better, but would be better. He's talking in... Uh, a realm of hypothetical. He's talking in a, in, a, in a metaphoric application. It would be better. But we got better there. Look how many other times we have better here. Uh, in verse 8, it is better to enter into life crippled or lame. He uses the term better when he's talking about uh, amputations and things. We'll get into that. Uh, verse 9, it is better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes in hell. Okay? Uh, the language of better is drawing the contrast. And that's what we have here in verse 6, is a contrast. There's a, there you have causing a little one to stumble, contrasted with millstone around the neck, drowning in the Pacific Ocean somewhere. Okay? Those two pictures. And he says, this one's better. <laughs> this one's better. You're better off Drowning, the millstone around your neck, compared to causing one of these little ones to stumble. The divine discipline consequences are only comparable to an unthinkable alternative. This is kind of like God's way of communicating a very dire or else, right? Um, you don't even want to think about how unpleasant the divine discipline is. You can't even imagine the divine discipline when God the Father comes down on you for causing a, a little one to stumble. Your imagination can't even fathom how dear the Father holds that to His heart. To the point where even strapping a millstone around your neck and plunging into the sea, that doesn't even come close. Okay? This is God's way of expressing an unthinkable alternative. I used to have... Uh, some people, when they give you the or else message, though, it's kind of wimpy. Because you, you, you learn really quickly that they don't really mean it. I had a sergeant in the army like that. It was horrible. I have no, no clue where he is today or whatever happened to him or anything. But uh, at the time I knew him, he was the worst kind of supervisor you ever could have imagined. And he always had these or else's. But we learned very quickly that it didn't mean anything. That the, the or else never happened. He would say, do this or else. And then we, soldiers wouldn't do it. But there was never any or else. There was never any consequence. And he was just full of bluster and full of, of uh, hot air and all that. And that's a shame. It shouldn't be like that. If you, if you deliver an or else, there needs to be an or else. The else needs to happen. 
It's kind of, <laughs> again, politically speaking, we talk about that when all this other kind of stuff. We gave Saddam Hussein an or else. And he didn't, uh, he didn't uh, comply. So we invaded his country. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of people that think it was stupid or they think we shouldn't have invaded and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if nothing else, we made good on our or else. <laughs> you know, we don't want to, whether it was a mistake or not, doesn't matter. And in a lot of ways, you gotta got to follow through on the or else. I think the United Nations loves giving these or else's and they never mean anything. All right. Unthinkable alternative. I want you to keep that in your mind because it's going to come back again. It's going to come up, up again. Now, how do we cause one of these little ones to stumble? It's going to be interesting. There are a lot of ways we can cause them to stumble. The term scandalizo, number 4624, is an interesting word study. I would encourage you to um, examine that. In fact, let me pull that up here. 4624. I'll give you the whole family of terms. Uh, you've got scandalizo. But that's, that's the verb. But you also have uh, some related terms. I want to I make sure you have the whole, the whole uh, package. All right, scandalizo is number 4624. That's your verb. The noun is scandalon. S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N, number 4625. And you really want to look at both. You want to look at your verb and your noun um, because the passages are so uh, interrelated. Both terms, scandalizo, 4624, and the noun, scandalon, number 4625. Fifteen uses of the noun and 30 uses of the verb. So there aren't really all that many. 45, uh, 45 verses. That's not a lot. That's a very modest word study. I did not increase the size of the text, did I? Is that too small for you all to look at? We'll move up closer. <laughs> Crafty fellow that I am. There's a opportunity for that. All right, so get both those terms down. Scandalizo, 4624, and Scandalon, number 4625. All right, good opportunities to track those down. So how do I do it? How do I cause a brother to stumble? Uh, we've got passages like Romans 14, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, where our liberty actually becomes uh, a stumbling block, where a believer looks at what we're doing and their conscience is defiled, or their faith, their weak faith then is defiled. We've, we've given a lot of teaching on that, on liberty and stumbling blocks in our First Corinthians series, so I think we're pretty solid on it. But here's another way we can cause a brother to stumble. Verse 10 speaks about despising them. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. One way in which we might cause a childlike brother to stumble is to despise them. Now, don't get me wrong, there are an infinite number of other stumbling blocks out there. You can cause a brother to stumble a whole lot of ways. Eating meat sacrificed to idols, drinking alcohol, playing cards, going to movies, smoking causes a lot of brothers to stumble. Whatever it is, okay? Uh, there's even other stumbling blocks that are rather unavoidable in just attending a doctrinal church. 
sometimes throws a block out there and other brothers and sisters just can't handle that. We'll talk about that a little bit because some of them are unavoidable. Christ caused folks to stumble by speaking the truth. If the truth causes the stumbling, don't feel like that's your accountability. But the one that Jesus highlights particularly here in this text is despising. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And, and despising where you think of them as worthless, where you think of them as, as, uh, less, as, as having no value. Despising is the opposite of esteeming. If you esteem something or if you esteem someone, that means that you place a high value to a person or a thing or an activity, what they're doing or, or what they're worth. Anything that you esteem highly means that you are estimating, you are, you are placing a high value on an activity, an object, a thing, or a person. Okay? Despising is just the opposite. No value or very little value or dismissing the value. I think we do this way too much. I think we dismiss and discredit young people, our children, for example. The, the children being raised here in Sunday school, being grounded in the Word of God, they've got more maturity than some of the adults. Because they have the humility to actually believe the Word that they're learning. And they're living it. Now, admittedly, yes, they're living it in a childlike context. They're applying faith on the playground instead of the workplace. They're, the level of their testing is not the level of the adult capacity for being tested. All right? But simply because they have that diminished capacity or the, the more limited realm in which their faith is being exercised does not mean that it's an inferior faith or that we should be dismissive of that faith. This passage tells us we can learn from that faith. We can imitate that faith. And we certainly want to encourage that faith. We don't want to discourage the younger believers among us. Because ideally and hopefully and prayerfully, they're the ones that are going to grow up. They're going to be the, the deacons and the pastors and the Sunday school teachers and the, the uh, believers of the next generation. Assuming, of course, we don't destroy them now. Christianity Today had an article I read yesterday about why are so many kids that grew up in church abandoning the church in their teenage years, in their college years, and what drives them away from the church. Um, some pretty frightening numbers, actually, what they're talking about. So one of the ways specifically referenced here that we can cause them to stumble is despising. See that you do not despise one of these little ones uh, because of their angels, and uh, we'll talk about their angels here at the end of our study today. Where are my notes on angels? Their angels. Ah, next point, point C. Their angels. I'm going to quote from... Where my point C go? have a point C, you just can't see it. <laughs> All right. Let me give you my point C, and then I'll give you my Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown quote. This is terrible. I thought I had fixed that. 
I got fancy with my PowerPoint, and then uh, I ended up covering up point C. I wanted to cover it up, just not yet. This is the kind of thing Cliff talked about editing out of the MP3 files. There is no C. I thought C was underneath there. C is not underneath there. All right, I'll have to give you C verbally. Terrible. There are angels in heaven. There are angels in heaven. So point C, there are angels in heaven. I don't want First Corinthians. There are angels in heaven. Christ warns about stumbling blocks. And then um, point C here, there are angels in heaven. Pretend that says point C. There are angels in heaven. Matthew 18, 10b. There are angels in heaven are an interesting subject for angelic studies. Even better than a guardian angel personal bodyguard. This is a verse that's typically referenced for the concept of guardian angels. Because their angels, their angels is a possessive pronoun, their. Okay? Their angels, the angels belonging to them, the angels associated with them, the angels assigned to them, the angels that are somehow in relationship to these little children. Okay? However you take their, right? It's a possessive pronoun, whatever you do with it. You cannot deny that it is a possessive pronoun. So it is either in terms of a personal possession is either in terms of a protection factor of, of, of guardian angels or uh, angels that were assigned to them, angels that specifically observe them. In whatever fashion we take the possessive pronoun, we still have to do something with the possessive pronoun. They're angels. And where are those angels? They are in heaven. Okay? They're on earth, but their angels are on heaven or in heaven. And those angels continuously see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So point C, their angels in heaven are an interesting subject for study. Matthew 18, 10b. Even better than a guardian angel personal bodyguard is a servant messenger. That's what an angelos is. Angelo is to announce. An angelos is a messenger, a servant messenger. A servant messenger with continuous access to God the Father. Even better than a guardian angel personal bodyguard is a servant messenger with continuous access to God the Father. <clears throat> a servant messenger with continuous access to God the Father. If you think about the uh, opportunity these children have in terms of their prayer life, and again, some of them have prayer lives that are better than the adult prayer lives around here. So they're there before the Father's throne themselves, in their own priesthood, in their own application. Beyond that, the message or the work of the angels in communicating such prayers. If I may make one side trip, may I? Yes, you may. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 
Eugene Merrill used to do that, Old Testament professor at Dallas Seminary. He'd say, may I digress? He'd say, yes, you may. Since he was the speaker that God had put in the pulpit. <clears throat> the, uh, the prayers that are offered here in terms of incense that's offered up. And the prayers, the incense is the prayers of the saints. And we're told that. And uh, the verse I'm looking for Where is the verse I'm looking for? The um, But see, there's angels that actually carry that incense in the heavenly places. All right, it's not the scripture I thought it was. Well then... Revelation 8. Is, okay, yeah, it's 5, 8, and then it's also 8, verses 3 and 4. So in Revelation 5, 8, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. All right? Consider, of course, prayers before the Father's throne. Consider, of course, the prayers are offered up verbally, mentally, spoken, thought, communicated by the human beings involved. But in the heavenly places, there is actually angelic activity associated with those prayers. If nothing else, holding the bowls and then pouring the bowls forth. In chapter 8, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him. Much incense was given to him so that he might add to the prayers of all the saints. So, you know, however many prayers you're offering up and there's this... Now, we have glimpses here, all right? There's a lot of evil doctrines out there that relate to angels and the worship of angels or praying to saints and the prayers of the saints, okay? These aren't the prayers of the saints, this is an angel, not a saint. Okay? And this isn't uh, St. Jude praying for traveling safety. Okay? Or St. whatever. There's a patron saint of everything thinkable. Okay? I need to find a patron saint of uh, PowerPoint to <laughs> intercede for my missing slides. Um, this is actually an angel. Now, do we understand how this works? No. We just see glimpses, all right? I'm trying to relate this back to where we are in Matthew 18 because their angels continuously see my Father's throne, my Father's face in heaven. And so here we see a dynamic between angels and human beings. And human beings are praying, and that is manifest in heaven in the form of incense in these bowls. But then these angels actually can contribute additional incense beyond what the human beings are producing. In other words, they are interceding as well. Okay. 
And so we're told in verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So there are angels at work in the heavenly places that cooperate with our prayer ministry. And in a particular season, I think, in a particular season of tribulation and persecution and increased testing on the earth, that God the Father permits or assigns these angels to be able to supplement the incense, as it were. Because our testing is fired up down here on the earth. And so the Father permits for our angels in heaven, our incense bowl-holding angels in heaven, to add incense beyond what we're adding in our own prayers. Okay? Now, that's an awful lot of conclusion based on two passages in Revelation and a, and a passing reference in Matthew 18. And all I'm saying is that's as far as we can run with it because we don't have an exhaustive um, angelic revelation. We have the human revelation that was given through um, given through the angels to mankind. Okay, let me do something else here. Let's just go to a single Bible mode. How's that? Is that easier? We'll just go to a single Bible mode. And we'll make it readable. Better? All right. So there's point C. There are angels in heaven are an interesting subject for study. Even better than a guardian angel, personal bodyguard is a servant messenger with continuous access to God the Father. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a personal bodyguard or would you rather have a servant messenger with continuous access to God the Father? It's like a co-worker who's the boss's nephew. You ever work with somebody like that? Biggest curse you ever worked with if it's ever happened, you know. Because he could be the, the slimiest, most deadbeat, useless employee and you end up doing half of his work plus all of yours. And you can't say anything about it to him or to anybody because he's the boss's nephew or the boss's son or daughter or whatever. And, and any little grumbling or gripe or anything you might say, he gets to whisper straight to the boss. Right? Takes it right to the boss. Here's what so-and-so said. So, it's an ugly situation. I used to have that. That was a horrible situation. Um... But now imagine a messenger directly to God the Father's throne. And even if you are not the sort that would complain or murmur or mention it to the Father, even if the child is humble and the child is stumbling and the child is hurting and uh, the child may not take it to the Father, to say, Father, my fellow believer, the child may not be like the psalmist in Psalm 119. To say that these princes are persecuting me without cause. That my elders who should know better are actually joining in my persecutors. The child may just be grieving under the whole situation. And, uh, and yet their angel in heaven adds incense to the fire. And adds the intercessory prayers to say, this little one is stumbling. 
this little one is hurting. And it's an older brother that's tripping him up. Okay? And that's all a part of how the angels learn and how the angels observe. And it's better than even the testimony of the, of the ground itself. Remember when God said the ground is crying out with the blood of Abel, your brother? God gets a testimony of all kinds of things from all kinds of sources. But these reports that are coming from the angels are coming from those that are specifically assigned to watch God's grace and judgment in action. All right, the quote from Fawcett and Brown. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. A difficult verse, but perhaps the following may be more than an illustration. Among men, those who nurse and rear the royal children, however humble in themselves, are allowed free entrance with their charge and a degree of familiarity which even the highest state ministers dare not assume. That make sense? Yeah. They might be a slave. In the Roman Empire, they used all kinds of slaves as, as tutors. Greek slaves to teach uh, literature and language to the in uh, philosophy to the to the young uh, children. He's a slave. What's a slave worth? Nothing. But a slave was permitted into the master's presence because the slave had been entrusted with the rearing of these children. Probably our Lord means that in virtue of their charge over his disciples, the angels have errands to the throne, a welcome there, and a dear familiarity in dealing with his Father which is in heaven which on their own matters they could not assume. See, they're not storming into the Father's throne on their own matters or under their own merit. They're simply there as representatives of the children uh, with whom they have been entrusted. Hebrews 1.13 tells us that the angels are ministering spirits that have been sent out to render service for the sake of those who have inherited salvation. Likewise, John 1.51 is a reference there. Anyway, that's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary. All right, point two. Point one, do not cause children to stumble. Point two, the cosmos receives a woe proclamation for its scandalous nature. The cosmos receives a woe proclamation. When God says woe, you're in trouble. You are in trouble. Because wrath is on the way. Wrath is already being exercised and even more wrath is right behind it. Woe is not a repent or else message. Woe is you did not repent. Here comes the judgment. The message of woe is not a call to repentance before judgment comes. The message of woe is this is the judgment. You did not repent. We've got woe messages throughout the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. The cosmos receives a woe proclamation for its scandalous nature. And I use the Greek characters for the scandal. And then I switch to English for the O-U-S. I combined scandal from the Greek, scandalon, scandalizo, with the English uh, suffix us. That way, you know, I'm talking about the scandalizo-like nature, not the scandalous nature in terms of the English word scandalous, right? Think of the people you know that are scandalous. The celebrities thrive on their scandalous behavior. And the more scandalous, the better, because they get more notoriety, more press, more coverage. (laughs) And you wonder sometimes, are they competing with each other? 
you know, Paris Hilton and and uh, Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan, all these celebrities, scandalous in what they're doing. Like they're trying to outdo one another in terms of their scandal. Now, our English scandalous comes from this, but uh, really I think the, the stumbling block emphasis is more pronounced in Greek than any English-derived term. So scandalous nature is the nature of this world to trip up believers. This world, this cosmos system, the world in which you and I live is not designed for our edification. It's entirely designed for our stumbling. It is an, it is an environment suited to our stumbling. Think about the cosmos as an environment. Okay? Cosmos is the most common word for world in the Bible. The cosmos. And it doesn't refer to the geography. It doesn't refer to the, to the land. That's gay, right? Where we get geo and geography and geology. The gay is, is the land, is the earth, is the physical planet. Okay? The cosmos is the arrangement. It is the order. It is the, it is the structure and the order of that planet, of that world. When you think cosmos, think order, think arrangement. Ladies, think cosmetics. The English word cosmetics deals with the order you put to your face. All right? Or the disorder. I don't know. Whatever you do, whatever you choose to do. But chances are you're not putting, you know, eyeliner on your lips and lipstick on your eyes. There's an order. I'm not entirely familiar with it. My wife uses that stuff. My daughters want to. However, that works within realms of modesty and Christian uh, godliness. But as it were, I think one daughter kind of went overboard a couple weeks back. <laughs> oh, well, I guess that's how you learn. She wasn't trying to get all painted up like something, but. Anyway, so you're putting order to your face when you're thinking about cosmetics. Cosmos is order, arrangement, and the order of this world. Satan has had dominion since he usurped that power. Some would say Adam relinquished it. Some would say Satan usurped it or a combination of both. And this world has been under Satan's cosmos direction ever since. And it is entirely geared for... Our downfall. It'd be like if you're trying to create an environment for your goldfish, you'd probably start with a tank and some water and whatever else you put in the water. Minerals and nutrients and food and bubbles and whatever else you do to keep the water clean, right? But that would not be the environment you would craft for your kitten. Right? No. Shove a kitten in a fish tank and you did not put them in a suitable environment. Or it's not an environment for your hamster or your whatever, gerbil, guinea pig. Okay? Different environments are suitable or not suitable for different things. This cosmos is intentionally crafted and designed and shaped not for our benefit. The Father created it for His glory and for the glory of Jesus Christ and for our habitation. However, it has since then been 
perverted, twisted, shaped, and so forth. And it has been prepared for our downfall. Everything about this world is geared to our downfall. The whole world system is working against us in our desire to glorify Jesus Christ and live in obedience to the Word of God. The world's against it, and our fallen bodies are working against it too. All right. The cosmos has been shaped. It's no different than anything else. Fundamental principle of of, uh, ancient warfare. Shape the battlefield to your advantage. Absolutely. Always has been. Every, every opportunity. You read, read Stonewall Jackson. Read Robert E. Lee. Read any military commander. Read Caesar. You want the battle on ground of your choosing. To your advantage. Prepared in your way. That's what the adversary has done. He is crafting this world to give him the advantage. In every way. Sub point A, the perfect plan of God (coughs) in creating should be volitional beings. The perfect plan of God in creating volitional beings. God created volitional beings. Some people say, well, that was a mistake. (laughs) Why did he do that? He did because it would have been imperfect not to. Everything he did was in accordance with his perfect wisdom. And that includes allowing Satan the permission to rebel. That includes allowing Adam and Eve the permission to fall. The perfect plan of God in creating volitional beings and permitting the exercise of that volition in a manner contrary to his directive will creates a situation in which stumbling blocks are inevitable. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. We read in Matthew 18:7. Why is it inevitable? The world we live in and the creatures that live here. Fallen creatures in a fallen world. Wills and desires that are permitted to operate independently from the Father's will and desire. So when Christ says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, what did he mean by that? Why are stumbling blocks inevitable? It's the way of this world. It's the reality we live in. And we would much rather live with our eyes open to the reality and deal with it than to somehow drift along in a, in a fantasy world where we're not facing the reality of what we live in. See, we're like stupid kids or somebody, you know, that whines and complains and throws a tantrum and says, oh, it's not fair. Well, let me tell you something. Life's not fair. <laughs> All right? Wake up. Life's not fair. Grow up. Life's not fair. Want to talk about fairness? God's fair. <laughs> But this life, this world, this fallen world, people you encounter, situations you face. All right. Let's just chew on this a little bit. He does say it's inevitable. Woe to the cosmos because of its stumbling blocks. 
For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Just make sure it's not you causing it. Woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. We'll address that here shortly under point B, that individuals also become the object of the woe in addition to the cosmos itself. But think about the plan of God that he allows choices. And he allows choices contrary to obedience. And then he administers consequences for those choices, right? You sow what you reap what you sow. Make a choice, face the consequence. It's the whole plan of God right there. And so, because of that, Satan rebelled. Because of that, Adam fell. Because of that, you and I commit sins. And every sin we commit is because <laughs> we establish a priority system that wants to feed self instead of glorify Christ. So it's inevitable. They will come. They will happen. This world is full of them. Because there's no shortage of unbelievers. There's no shortage of servants of the, of the adversary that do these things. Remember, he is the diabolos. He is the slanderer. He is the tempter. He is the one that is actively bringing these things about. Plenty of unbelievers are doing that. The sad thing is, his favorite tools are the believers who should know better. His favorite tools are the ones that can get the closest and can hurt the most. Alright. You know, a, a total pagan that's out there is one thing. Somebody that's outside the church is one thing. And, uh, you know, a, a stranger in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a trench coat with a hat and a beard and... Uh, and he meets you in a dark alley and, and uh, you know, wants you to do something nefarious or smoke something or whatever. You know, those are the real obvious deals, right? But what about when it's your friend? Your brother in the church? He says, come on, it's all right. It's not that bad. Does that make it worse? Yeah, those are the favorite tools the adversary likes using. Um, I should expand upon that a bit. Let me give you B first and then we'll maybe expand upon A again. Individuals who are the tools for the cosmos become individual objects for God the Father's woe proclamation. The cosmos itself receives a woe and then individuals who become the tools for the cosmos, they become individual objects for God the Father's woe. He actually repeats the woe in verse 7. Woe to that man on an individual basis. The cosmos at large is an object of God's wrath. But then the stumbling block tools individually become object of God's wrath. Woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, is this a contradiction to our, our struggles not against flesh and blood? No, it's not a contradiction. Understanding, of course, this passage and elsewhere that talk about the people testings we face are legitimate passages. We face people tests. The Ephesians 6 passage that tells us our struggles against principalities of powers shows us what the motivation, the empowerment, and the spirit is behind the human beings and, and why they're doing the things they're doing. 
does not deny, of course, the fact that the adversary will use human beings as their tools, as their instruments. Does that make sense? Okay. So individuals who are the tools for the cosmos. We're not supposed to be a cosmos tool. We're supposed to be the Father's tool. We're supposed to be His implement. He's supposed to use us to edify and bless others. We're not supposed to be the, the, the cosmos tool. We want to be the objects of the Father's blessing, the object of His praise, the object of His well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to be the recipient of His woe proclamation, the woe message. All right, I made a phrase, I, made, I used a term in point A in terms of directive will. Are you guys familiar with all the different wills of the Father? Let me run through these. I realize we taught this in Bulology, we taught this again in Thalematology. But it's been a little while. Let's put this back up here again and remind ourselves of the will of God. Because I think this causes some uh, confusion. Particularly when God's directive will does not happen. And there's uh, confusion. I think some people simply allow the confusion because we have different terms that we use. And so that's maybe a, an etymology thing more than anything else. I don't care what the term is as long as we get the concept across. So when I talk to Baptists or Bible churches or Methodists or other believers of different flavors, I want to be able to describe these things in terms that they understand. All right. The will of God. Different aspects on the will of God. Now, the phrase I used was directive will. And I also speak of his permission permitting us to uh, act contrary to his directive will. All right, the will of God. <clears throat> Some terms, let me just list them up here in, in any particular order. The uh, I'll start with the ones we've mentioned already. Directive will, permissive will. Uh, we've not yet addressed it, but the overruling will. There are other aspects. Colonel Theme talked about the uh, the geographic will, which I think is just a specific application of the direct directive will of God. The locality of where we're supposed to be. All right. Some other things. Scripture also speaks of the decretive will. That which he has decreed, what he, what, he, what he decrees he accomplishes. The decretive will is never thwarted. God's decree goes forth. Okay. Uh, there's also what's called the secret will. I don't know anything about that. None of us do. We just know it exists. We know that God has kept certain things to his own wisdom, certain things to his own counsel. He has not revealed them to us. We do not have the capacity to even understand them. We just know that the secret will is, does exist. All right, there are other, there are other uh, applications. Let's just start with those. All right, the directive will. Here's where the biggest confusion comes in. And why I'm going to take the time to do this before we dismiss in prayer. Because people confuse the directive will with the decretive will. And it bugs them to death when the directive will is not accomplished. Okay? 
because it's viewed as an attack on sovereignty or it's viewed as an attack on, you know, on the Bible and God accomplishes all his good pleasure and all this other stuff. And I think it's because we're not being careful to, dis- to distinguish between what he decrees and what he directs. And you have to draw that distinction. All right. Directive will is when God issues a command. He issues a directive. Okay. A directive will is where God directs or orders moral beings. Where he orders moral beings. This would be the angelic and human realms of creation. I do not include the animal realm of creation as a moral being. Um, I, there is no example. God directs animals all the time. And they do what he wants all the time. They don't have the moral capacity to rebel. Uh, when he wants bears to eat children, the bears eat children. When he wants donkeys to teach Bible class, donkeys teach Bible class. Any, he wants ravens to feed Elijah, ravens feed Elijah. Every animal that's ever directed accomplishes the, the purpose of the Creator. We never find animals with the capacity to, uh, the, the moral capacity for obedience, disobedience, sin, redemption, any of that. But angels and humans are the moral realm of the cosmos. Angels obey, angels disobey. Presently, of course, now they are in their locked eternal estate of elect angels and fallen angels. Human beings obey and disobey. So we have the directive will of God. The directive will of God says, uh, thou shalt not steal. Okay. But a human being disobeys and steals something. Permissive will of God is what God allows moral beings to do. He allowed Adam and Eve to eat that fruit. Told them not to. Allowed them to do it. The example we normally use is Jonah. God directive will, God directed Jonah to go to Nineveh. Permissive will, God permitted Jonah to flee to Tarshish. Overruling will, the storm, the fish, the beach. Okay? Overruling will of God is where God arranges the circumstances. Oftentimes thwarting what we wanted to do. Not always. Sometimes in permissive will, he lets us do what we're going to do. It is interesting in the overruling will of God and the concept of coercing our volition, coercing our will, making us do things. Did God make Jonah go to Nineveh? He told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And uh, through the storm, through the fish, on the beach, he didn't send a bird to carry him to Nineveh, but the fish spit him up on the beach, and God said, all right now, go to Nineveh. And Jonah chose, (laughs) right? Jonah decided, Jonah felt... (laughs) Whatever, that uh, he'd had enough. That the discipline had accomplished his purpose. 
that the overruling will of God, the hand of God's discipline, had brought about a change of thinking. And that in his new way of thinking, that obeying God was better than disobeying God, he then went to Nineveh. So you got the directive will, permissive will, overruling will. All right. Of course, the geographic will, where God wants you at any given time, doing what God wants you to do at any given time. Now, the decretive will. The decretive will is what he decrees. This is what God causes. He spoke and the universe came into being. The decretive will is not what he commands a moral being to accomplish. It's what he himself declares and accomplishes. That's the decretive will, what he decrees. The divine decrees. When we talk about the grace eternal plan of God, the eternal life conference, and the divine decrees. One of those divine decrees, by the way, was the decree to uh, create the hypostatic union for God the Son, for Jesus Christ, for the second person of Trinity, and then to create moral beings, to to go to the cross. All of these were the decrees, a part of the Father's grace eternal plan. Not subject to moral beings, either obeying or disobeying. God himself brought them about. All right. And then the secret will, like I say, we're not entitled to. All right. We're not entitled to. So that's a just a short, short rundown. You can spend, of course, hours and days and days on it. Um, the best thing, of course, is to, to keep in mind that with all of the, the uh, decrees, for example, the the, uh, the directive will of God in terms of um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God desires all men to be saved. And yet, most don't, right? Again, keeping, there's a difference between what he directs and what he decrees. He decreed our election. That has nothing to do with us. That's, that's his sovereign choice. But he directed. You see the difference between what he decreed and what he directed? What he decrees is what he brings about. What he directs is what he expects us to obey. And there's a difference, important difference. When you think about the things that God desires, and he doesn't realize all his desires, because some of the desires have to come into conformity with his own essence, with his own nature. He has to be true to his own faithfulness. He cannot deny himself, we're told. And so although he desires for none to perish, the fact that most do is a testimony to God himself in being faithful to himself. All right, well, that's beyond what I was going to take that. Any questions on that? You can save them for tonight. We'll come back tonight for question and answer time. So, the perfect plan of God in creating volitional beings, the fact that he designed angels and humans to be moral beings, beings with intellect, sensibility, and will, uh, creating volitional beings and permitting the exercise of that volition in a manner contrary to his directive will, creates a situation in which stumbling blocks are inevitable. It's the world we live in. We are fallen creatures in a fallen world. 
All right, we will have to save. We're over time. We'll come back next week, and we'll chop off hands and feet. We'll pluck out eyes. Metaphorically, okay. For a moment, I thought we were going to turn Muslim or something. Okay. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, uh, help us to understand uh, these matters as we pray over and consider differences between directive will and decretive will, what you direct and what you decree. And Father, help us to also understand the, the uh, way in which you reconcile your sovereignty and our volition and the, all of the things there that sometimes makes our heads spin, sometimes uh, causes us, the finite creatures, to wonder uh, how they connect. Father, I'm just thankful that you, uh, you have these things all as a part of your plan. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.